Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So at this point, uh, our tradition is to go around and introduce ourselves, uh, and then uh, I get to introduce our speaker today. Uh, so let me start. Uh, my name is Oswaldo. This is Stuart. Jason. I'm Brad. My name is Michael. I'm Kay. My name's Tom. David. Gary. Don. My name's Cass. Jonathan. And Claudia. Jay. Bob. Tim. I'm Cal. My name's David. Fred. Peter. My name is David. Dennis. Jack. Douglas. I'm Philip. I'm Flip. I'm Matthew. Larry. My name is Jerry. Stephen. My name is Mike. <coughs> My name is Mark. I'm Lee. I mean, I'm Roy. Is anybody Richard? I'm Richard. Okay, so uh, uh, the, the speaker we had scheduled for today unfortunately had uh, some uh, problem with her foot that prevented her from driving all the way from the mountains to here, Heather Sunburn. Uh, so uh, we're uh, grateful to, to have uh, not just a replacement, but somebody who uh, has uh, spoken here many times before, uh, Prasada Chita. Prasada Chita is an ordained member of the Tiratna Buddhist, uh, Buddhist community, uh, which is uh, the one that occupies that owns this building. Uh, he teaches meditation, yoga, and Buddhism at the San Francisco Buddhist Center. His practice and teaching grows out of a va uh, valuing of friendship and community. He's interested in the Buddhist theories of poetic expression and communicates links between lofty ideals and our ordinary life. He's also a photographer and, and a spotter and filmmaker, so welcome for Sadashita. Uh, that's old. I actually now am a filmmaker. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Uh, I really appreciate this community and uh, even when I'm not here, if I'm just having a slow Sunday morning, I appreciate that you're here. I'm, um, it is true. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, community, and I do think that um, a lot of what it means to me to be a Buddhist is uh, being attentive, receptive, and responsive to the notion of community. <coughs> Um, and there's this uh, thing in um, Zen Buddhism which I have sort of a, um, 
uh, interesting relationship with because we use a Zen retreat center when we hold our retreats. And in fact, I go there for solitaries. And they're not so solitary because there's a community. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't really take the notion of being solitary that seriously. It's really just being alone with myself. I don't mind if there's other people around, you know. Uh, share this, uh, so I share the retreat center with them, and sometimes when I'm there on my solitary, I just go to their sits, and then I go have breakfast with them. And so I've, um, you know, because you get lonely on solitary. <laughs> um, and uh, so I've learned a bit about. They have this language that talks a lot about ancestors, and I don't, you know, I don't totally understand it. But they have, they read out the names of their ancestors. Um, and it's quite beautiful, and it's very ceremonious. And they, and they do it in the mornings, and probably other times as well. But um, I, uh, I've come to appreciate that um, the common ancestor, one of the common ancestors, is the Buddha. So we have this common ancestor, the historical figure of the Buddha. And it's a nice way to think about it. Um, there's a lot of uh, devotional and ritual texts that um, use language like once one comes in contact with the Dharma and becomes devoted to it, it's like, um, it's, I don't want to use the term reborn, but it's like, it's like being a, new fa- a, fam- a, new, a member of a new family. Like that, that even though you appreciate you know, your, your own progeny and your own raising, but there's like, it's poetically speaking as if you now have a new, a new family. You now have inherited new, in a sense, new visions, new ideals, new ways of thinking of yourself. And, uh, and you're devoted to that in a similar way that you might be devoted to family. Um, and I, uh, I was just asked a couple days ago to do this, so I haven't actually prepared anything. Mm-hmm. Just started talking. But, um, so give me a minute to figure out how this relates to what I might be talking about. Uh, so the Buddha, yeah. So I, I, I particularly appreciate getting into who is the Buddha? Who was this guy? Uh, um, you know, there are different ways into Buddhist practice. It's a very practice-based um, institution, if you want to call it that. It, um, it's, its primary focus is on um, what you do, how you operate, and how you change um, in that, in relationships to that, in relationship to some ideal. And um, its uh, its modes are like by invitation, so try this out. See how it works. If it doesn't work, well, try a different thing. Uh, and um, and yet, we also we do have these ideals. We have this vi- these visions, these stories, these thousands of years of tradition, which um, tell the story and retell it. And and there was this historical figure who had this realization. And um, what makes a person a Buddhist is, in a way, an affinity for that. Like trying to figure out who's this guy about, which is kind of like what what's he about. You might even say, in terms of this whole notion of family. You know, we all have a different relationship to our family, but sometimes it's really enriching to kind of be like, who was my dad? You know, like, 
uh, why did he treat me the way he did? And you kind of, so you want to ask your dad's friends who were there when he was in high school or college or something, you know. Like, so you kind of learn more about who your father was, you know, like, um, you know, what were his hangups that you missed or you took to be normal? <laughs> and you find out they're actually like, just particular to your dad and they have an impact on you. So anyway, in a similar manner, like, who is the Buddha? You know, what were his uh, historical sort of um, understandings that kind of led him to into his search the way he searched? You know, because he was a particular person in a particular time in history. Um, uh, anthropologically speaking, he almost certainly existed, <laughs> and um, so um, so that really interests me. So there are. Uh, genres of texts and um, stories that uh, that help us, you know, that bring the story through the ages to us. And uh, I'll say a little bit about that. The, um, a lot of it is like the devotional chants and things like that. In fact, a lot of what is recorded as being historically Buddhist really was just chant, almost like devotional-like chants that were just... Um, sort of canonized after a while, but they were just chants. They were the way of re remembering what the Buddha had to say or what the stories about the Buddha were, were just these repetitive chants. They were done in a rather, rather ritualized manner. And um, in a way they, they are way, they are a way of kind of being thankful for the Buddha. You may not even know what the chant's saying, you're just chanting it, you know. Um, and then you learn over time, both through your practice and through like looking through what these chants are saying. So there's the practice side of it, and then the conceptual, like what is it saying? And then that reflects back on the practice side. So I'm going to do one of these chants that uh, is important to me and is, is central to this community. There's a book of these um, chants here. This is our community's um, ritual book. There's a bunch of uh, ritual texts that we memorize and chant. And, um, and they are a way of paying homage to our, our ancestry, our uh, spiritual ancestry. Um, yeah, so I'm going to chant one particular text. And we can, um, we're going to, I'm going to tell you now, after I chant it, we're going to go into it sort of conceptually. It actually, it has meaning. But I'm just going to chant it first, and you can just have a sense of it being a devotional kind of thing, like a beloved family member who's given you everything, and you are respecting them through this chant. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Itipiso Magava Araham Sama Sambudho Vija Charana Sampano Sugato Lokavidu Anutaro Purisadama Sarati 
Sata Deva Manusanam Budho Bhagavati Budham Jivata Pariantam Saranam Gachami Yecha Budha Atitacha Yecha Budha Anagata Pachupanna Chaye Budha Aham Vandami Sabada Nati me sarananyam, budho me saranam varam, etena sachavachena, hotu me jayamangalam. Svagato bhagavata damo, sanditiko akaliko, ehi pasiko opanaiko pachatam veditabo venuhiti damam jivata pariantam saranam gachami yecha dhamma atitacha yecha dhamma anagata pachupanna chaye dhamma aham vandami sabada Nati me sarananyam, damo me saranam varam, hetena sachavachena, hotume jayamangalam. Okay. <clears throat> so um, those are two parts of the Tiratna Vandana, the homage to the three jewels. You've heard of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Those were the homage to the Buddha and the Dharma. I just didn't do the Sangha one. Uh, I wanted to cut it a little short. Um, and then there's a bit after that where you rejoice in uh, all three together. Um, but what I want to talk about is the Dhamma Vandana. I've said a little bit about the Buddha. The first Vandana is really just saying the Buddha's great, he taught well. Uh, He's the teacher of gods and men. Basically, that's what it says. And uh, the second one I'm going to get into detail about, because we might wonder, so what is, how do we know what the Dhamma is, what the Buddha taught? And interestingly, part enshrined within this devotional chant are the qualities of the Dhamma, the qualities of the Dharma, the things that make the Dharma the Dharma, essentially so that we can know it, you know, because the thing is, is that there was a lot of teachings going around, a lot of practices going around, and this was in the day when the Buddha was around. 2,000 years later, there's even more. There's just, this is all over the world. There's a lot of iterations. So there are these um, touchstones for what the Dharma is, and it's in this devotional chant. And I wanted to say a little bit about what these are. Um, so you heard it during the chant. It is um, Svagato Bhagavata Dhammo. So the, this is well communicated as the teaching of the richly endowed woman. So I'm going to tell you what I feel well communicated is. Because you might say, oh, well, okay, it's well communicated. So then you study as much of these texts as you can and you think, which ones of these texts are well communicated and what makes them well communicated? Well, what, what makes them well communicated to me is that when you read these texts, the Buddha is um, meeting people where they are. 
So each teaching is like for that person. It's not abstract. It's like what's happening with you and what can I give you to help? It's incredibly responsive. So it's not some kind of static list of things, even though we can often relate to the Buddhist uh, teachings that way, that it's just this list, that's what it is. But actually what it is is a, a heartfelt communication from one individual taking in another individual, thinking about what they need from your own perspective and providing that. This is well communicated. And the Buddha was richly endowed because he understood the human heart through his own heart. He understood the human mind through his own mind. And he utilized that understanding to help those who came in contact with him. And if you read the text, you really get that sense. You really get the sense that the Buddha was communicating um, directly and individually to each person. Uh, and respond, really responsive. So it was well communicated the next one is um, Sanditiko. This literally means visible, but it's understood to mean um, in the present in the moment, meaning like whatever it is that is the Dhamma, it should be able to be pointed out to, to a person. So um, what this translates into is if you take the invitation of meditation or generosity or any of the various things that the Buddha endorsed as being a way to practice, you should be able to see in your very experience the benefits being lauded by that thing, at least for now, or at least some bit of it, at least some movement in that direction. Yeah. Um, it should be based upon things that um, don't have to be taken for granted, at least initially. So it's immediately apparent, sanditiko. It's perennial, akaliko. Uh, this means always relevant, timeless. So similar to the first one. It means that um, whatever the Buddha is trying to point to through his communication is something that's always valuable, always relevant. It's of the nature, this is my favorite one. It's of the nature of a personal invitation, ehi pasako. So I studied with a um, Sanskrit scholar um, uh, who originally was involved in kind of the, um, I would say he's an ancestor of ours. He originally was involved with the um, beginnings of the group that became this center, and he taught Sanskrit at uh, Stanford. Um, and then he went to Montana where he's taught, taught, I think it was Montana State University. Anyway, so there's now a center in Montana related to us as well. But he, he taught me um, about this word. He was really into it. And he kind of passed his affinity for this term, ehipasiko. And he said it like this. It kind of, the semantics of the word, I guess, the way the, uh, the word is used, it kind of means it's a come and see thing. <coughs> Because ehi is like, come along. And so it's like, I don't really quite understand how that works like in terms of language. But he said that it almost literally means it's a come and see thing. So this, whatever this dhamma is, is a come and see thing. It's, it's meant to be an invitation, not an imposition in any way. If it's an imposition, it's not the dhamma. Um, I think this is really important, especially within um, 
a Judeo-Christian religious context, which can often feel like religion is about imposition, is about what one should do. Um, uh, Come and see thing means, if you want good results, come along, check this out. Yeah? That, and if you read the, the scriptures, that's often the way the Buddha words things. You know, if you want your heart to feel free, light, and so on, and those are the kinds of words used, I've got some advice for you. Come along, check it out. Let's do it. Ehi pasiko. Um, the next one is uh, openayiko. So it's progressive. This the best. It, uh, openayiko, I think, literally means leading onward. Um, and this means that it, it leads towards an ideal, towards something that we naturally have affinity for. That if you sit down with somebody and you really ask them, like, what are you looking for in your experience? What kind of satisfaction is really worthy of following? This is what the Dhamma leads towards. Um, So it's progressive in the sense that it leads towards it bit by bit or quickly, but it leads towards it one way or another. It's a progressive practice. Openayiko. Um, leads towards what truly satisfies. And the last one is Pachadam Veditabu Venuhiti, uh, to be understood individually by the wise. So one who understands it is by definition wise. And so it is to be understood individually by the wise. It is not something to be... um, codified in some kind of list of language that, again, it has a lot of this has to do with it's not an imposition. It's for us to individually take the invitation and go and realize for ourselves, individually. This doesn't mean we realize it by ourselves. We may do it with the help of others. But we realize it. We don't just rely on hanging out with other people who have realized it. Yeah. It's to, it, is, it is intended for us all to realize for ourselves. And when we do, we will be the wise. That's pretty much what it's saying. So that is the uh, second part of the Tiratnavandana. And I especially appreciate being part of a tradition that is devoted towards this as an ideal, that whatever it is, so this reminds us, whatever it is we're studying, whatever, whatever lists of uh, things that we're undertaking, you know, like not, non-harm and um, mindfulness and, you know, um, truth, truth in speech and um, virtuous conduct, especially with regard to... Um, <laughs> sensual desire, all of these things can feel like an imposition. And I, and I go back to these things and I realize what they are. They're an invitation, whatever value, taking on these uh, precepts uh, has is something that is to be realized by me, not to be just seen as an imposition or something that I'm judged upon by others. I come to realize the value of whatever it is that I'm practicing. I may not right now understand that value, but perhaps it's because I'm not paying attention closely enough. You know, perhaps it's because I am taking it for granted that um, 
I'm going to be judged on this. You know, these are all distractions. To be judged by your community on the basis of what you're doing is just a distraction from paying attention to whether what you're doing is actually valuable, if that makes sense. You know, so these kinds of words help me remember that, help me, because it's very easy to get wrapped up in the, what we call in Buddhism the worldly wins, praise and blame being one of the biggest ones. And that distracts us from what really we're trying to do in this practice. And, and, and it's so uh, incredible to me that these are enshrined within something we devote ourselves to, these chants. Um, yeah. So, um, what is the, how long, uh, when do I stop? Anytime you want to, you know, one of the things that, that might be helpful at some point is for we will open it up to Definitely. questions. And, uh, That's what I want to do. So. Yeah, we're, we're, we we usually end at about 11.45, is that right? Well, uh, you know, until noon. We go until noon. We do but go until noon. That's what I mean. the end with the announcements. So okay, good. Most of the time. Because um, I have a few things that I can go over, but I kind of feel like this is, this is a, a big enough thing. The next thing that, um, and... You know, I'm going to be here in January, because what, what I would like to do is, um, you know, go into some of the uh, stories about the Buddha and the records of what he had to say, and kind of go into them in a way that get into, that try to get into who the Buddha was and where he was coming from. And one of the things that I want to say about that is that um, throughout. Uh, some of the most ancient uh, Buddhist texts, um, there are these stories about how the Buddha was regularly um, not recognized. That he looked just like any of his disciples. And this happened really regularly. That he would be sitting there in somebody's barn because he hung out, you know, he was a wanderer. He just hung out in people's sheds. Right? He said, oh, can I stay in your shed for the night? And I mean, literally, he would stay in the shed place where they kept the, 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 uh, the straw dry. And he'd be in there and some other monk, because it was standard practice for wandering spiritual um, seekers to uh, stay in people's sheds. So another monk would come in and he'd be in the shed and he would have no idea that this was his teacher because, you know, at the time, the Buddhist teaching was famous and he couldn't have contact with all his disciples. So they would have this conversation about the Dhamma, what was real, what was valuable, what was a good practice. And eventually, the one who was not the Buddha would be like, just come to realize that he was actually talking to the Buddha, that this was so good, this stuff was so good and so clear that he would say, he would get all apologetic, you know? He'd be like, he would bow and he'd just be like, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't realize you are the Buddha. And this is actually a common thing that, um, that, that throughout the scriptures, that was important to convey. And whether or not, it, remember this is literature, so whether or not that actually happened or maybe the people who recorded this stuff, who made, who recorded these stories, thought it was important to, under, you know, because he knew that, that, maybe they knew, I just think this, maybe they knew that later generations would make, put the Buddha up on a pedestal and make him sort of bigger than life. And that actually did happen. So you have this literature, some of which says the Buddha had longer arms and like a protrusion on his head and all these things that made him sort of just a superhuman, you know, that he was just a bit bigger than everybody else. But then there are these other texts that make that show that that's clearly not the case. Clearly he just looked like anybody else. Um, 
So it's a human tendency to take somebody who's really inspiring and make him more than he was. But he was just a man who wandered around in dirty old rags, helping people out. Um, yeah, so in January, when I come back, I want to go through some of the texts, some of the inter interchanges that he had with people. Um, but uh, I'll stop there, and uh, perhaps we can discuss. And if you'd like, I can uh, read back the list of the qualities of the Dharma, um, or the Dhamma, if you um, want. They are well-communicated. Svagato, Bhagavata, Dhammo. So they're well-communicated by the richly endowed one. They are uh, the quality of immediately of being immediately apparent, sandhiko, uh, visible in the present. Perennial, so that's akaliko, always relevant, timeless. Literally timeless, because kaliko means time and ah is without. Um, of the nature of a personal invitation, ehi pasiko, progressive, opinayiko, leading onward towards the ideal. Uh, to be un understood individually by the wise. Pachatam Veditabo Venuhiti. So if anybody has any thoughts they want to share or questions about <clears throat> those words that perhaps uh, I can answer, but yeah, maybe not. For clarification, this is Pali, correct? These are Pali, that's right. And I actually uh, found some texts from Access to Insight where you actually see these, but um, they're all, the only place I found them in this list is this devotional chant called the Tiratnavandana. It wouldn't it would be not so much the, it wouldn't be so much a sutta as a devotional chant about the Dhamma. Yeah. I'm curious about how. Your community, uh, San Francisco Buddha Center, uh, uh, their ancestors, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, how they? I mean, this is. You mentioned this is Bali, not yeah. Sanskrit. Uh, and I, and I'm. Uh, what if you could say a bit more about how that came to be in modern day in, in our community? West, in our yeah, yeah, yeah. How your community? Um, so yeah, these chants. This particular chant is mostly done within the Theravada tradition. Our founding teacher um, was ordained into the Theravada tradition um, and studied Pali with um, a renowned Pali scholar. And it was a bit of a, you, you have to remember this was the 40s. So it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a <laughs> university institution that he was in. And this was in India. Um, so uh, that was a lot of his early study was kind of underneath was a bit scholastic, um, and then and then he came in contact with a bunch of really uh, uh, well-regarded Tibetan teachers. He just happened to be in the Himalayas, and um, uh, they inspired him more than he had been inspired before. It became not scholastic anymore. So the unfolding of our particular tradition is one where we had a teacher, our founding teacher, who was very well learned in these texts, but actually his heart was drawn into um, being uh, devoted towards a bunch of these Tibetan teachers that he met in Kalimpong, which, uh, and this is the 50s when a lot of these people were leaving uh, Tibet. So he came in contact with them. 
um, in this small town that was a bit of a refugee town when the Chinese were sort of causing the exodus of uh, a lot of Tibetan teachers. Um, so that's the how our tradition kind of came about because he that at that point he stopped practicing so to speak the Theravada quite as much although he didn't think of it as a contradiction he thought he was going to teachers that were just more inspiring to him so our particular and then eventually he just sort of disrobed and started this tradition which is a bit of a synthesis between um, the Pali literature and the Sanskrit literature and we have a lot of ways of thinking about things that use both does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Where was the teacher from? Like, where was he born? What, what was the teacher's name? Uh, Sangharakshita. Um, and he was born in London. And his initial contact with Buddhism was through the London Buddhist Society, which still exists, um, and which still supports uh, uh, the Theravada monastic tradition in, in England. And um, he... Uh, then the war happened, so that was his. He was he he was involved with the kind of. It was very scholastic at the time. Again, in London, it was kind of an interest. And then the war happened, and he went to uh, India, and he was actually stationed in Sri Lanka as a signals operator as a young man, um, nineteen, you know. And then he dis, he basically went forth in India and got ordained and kind of gave up his everything and stayed in India for quite a while. So that's Sangharaksha's story, yeah. And eventually he ended up coming back to England where he started the Tiratna Buddhist community, previously known as the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. Yeah, that's the synopsis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Clint? Yeah, I understand the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order are, have presence in India and are working with the untouchables. Yes. Um, can you tell me how that's going along? I mean, coming along, are they really making a successful outreach? Because I understand if you're untouchable, why would you want to like embrace a, a tradition where you're you can't be too lonesome to be touched? Yes. Oh, yeah. So um, uh, uh, around a third of our order are uh, Indian, the vast majority of whom are uh, Dalit or formerly untouchable um, class. And I've been there a few times. Um, there, uh, yeah, it's it's expanding. The, you know, it's it's a population of three hundred million people uh, who are um, some of the most uh, culturally oppressed people in the world. I'm not sure if that. Three hundred million people overall <laughs> in India, or in India, are in this class. Oh wow, three hundred million just in that class alone. Yeah. Uh, how does it how does that work? I mean, can you just not get certain jobs or not contact with people because you're this cast? It's complicated it's because actually, the designation to call, to make some to designate somebody as being untouchable is illegal under the constitution. Remember, the Indian constitution is written by Ambedkar, who was. Uh, a great man who basically um, was the leader of this class of people. He 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 basically made a deal with uh, Gandhi. You know, they Gandhi had to have his support in order to get independence, and um, so he and he was a scholar. He was a legal scholar, educated at Columbia and other various other places. Highly educated, very smart man, 
and he wrote the Indian Constitution. So a lot of the Indian Constitution um, has uh, protections written into it that aren't necessary. You know, it's still to this day they've got this incredibly good protection that doesn't filter down. If you know what I mean, to the smaller areas and to the, you know, in in at, India has a lot of things that are like this is the way it's supposed to be, but then there's just how it is. Yeah. And I can't say much about how it is, <laughs> and I can't even really say that much about how it's supposed to be, other than what I just did. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering uh, the words that you were singing were in Sanskrit, right? No, those were Pali. Pardon? Pali. Pali. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering how you maintain a relationship with these words and what your relationship to the Pali language is, if any, whether you studied it or not. Um, I study it in the sense that um, uh, I, I'm not college educated or anything, but I'm constantly studying it. And I think it's very important for me and for Buddhists in general to have a a flowering relationship with Pali and Sanskrit, which uh, which means that you are doing two things. One, you're trying to find the meaning of the words in your own experience every, all the time. And to do that, you're using the English translations. And then you're coming to a different understanding of what those translations mean than you first thought what it meant. Two, you're listening to people who have the... Uh, scholastic knowledge and research to uh, shed more light on the, the circumstances that the words arise in so that you can kind of have a better understanding of um, why the use, word was used and what other context the word was used in. Um, and in a person I read regularly, uh, Biko Analio, um, is, is a scholar. I highly recommend his books. We have a few of them for sale here. And what he does is not only study the ancient Pali, but he also studies all the contexts um, within which uh, the, tr the texts were translated into Chinese and Japanese and various, mostly Chinese. Um, so to get a sense of like, because they had very astute Chinese scholars translating, so they probably had some insight that we don't have. So what were they translating these words as and that kind of thing. So these, there's amazing scholastic stuff available for getting a better sense of what the words mean. And I do think that's quite important. Um, yeah. yeah. Also, what gets maybe lost in translation or transformed in translation. Yes. And I, so I think there's a, it's probably not a good idea to settle on what something means, but more keep studying, keep reading different contexts and get it. Because um, often there's a lot of, there's not even a single word. And the amazing thing is the way the Buddha taught, there's a lot of instances where the Buddha re gives a whole list of ways to understand things. So he gives synonyms, like a thesaurus for something. And those are my favorite teachings. Yeah. Um, so, Prasadachi, I'm curious about um, something historical, which maybe you can shed some light on. So you talked about how um, Gandhi had this alliance with the untouchables in order to like, yes. uh, gain liberation from uh, the rule of the British. Yes. But I don't see that mentioned in any of the popular renditions or biographies or movies or things about his life. Were these the people that volunteered to line up in, in, in civil disobedience and be beaten down with sticks for trying to harvest salt or I doubt you know, it. collect water? I doubt it. 
I, I don't actually know, but I highly doubt it. And that's because we're talking about people who are afraid to go outside often. We're talking about people who are so downtrodden, so in a position of not being able to put their head up, um, that they would not, I would not, they would not have been the ones standing up against English rule. Not even be seen in public. Yeah, not even be seen in public. You weren't allowed to touch their shadow. Uh, they would be on the edge of town, just barely eking out a living. And you see this in India. And, um, the, uh, and, and they also were very dubious of independence because the only people that treated them as real human beings were the English, mm-hmm. the British. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, the reason Ambedkar was able to go to school was because his father worked for a British colonel. The only reason. Otherwise, he would have never been able to go to school. So that all of the educated uh, Dalit community basically got their head up because of British rule. And they were really concerned. This is why the Gandhi had to make a deal, because they were really concerned about losing that, because they, they didn't want independence. So Gandhi made a deal, and that's why Ambedkar got to write the Indian Institute Constitution, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do you know anything about the uh, conversion of Hindus to Buddhism, uh, it's my understanding that the, uh, the concept of untouchables is uh, part of the, the Hindu perspective, uh-huh. and that if you're a Hindu untouchable and you convert to being Buddhist, well, you're not untouchable anymore. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a Buddhist, and that faith doesn't have the same tradition. Do you know anything about that? About that? Well, I know some, because I have friends who are in that position. Um, I'm not exactly sure what you're sort of pointing to as ramifications of that, but there is a lot of tricky business where uh, the Dalit community has certain protections under the Constitution, and then they become Buddhist, and they say, oh, well, you don't have these protections anymore. <laughs> if, you know, because you, now you're not, a, you're not a Dalit. But, but actually, the Constitution doesn't say that. It, it, it has them as a class, a cultural class, meaning it doesn't matter what they change their religion to. But, but yes, what you said is true. I mean, the, as far as I can tell, and I'm not an expert in this, but I have, I have enough knowledge of it that, that basic, fundamental Hinduism has this class system enshrined within it, and it is unavoidably a part of it. First of all, thank you so much for stepping in at the last moment and having such a, a really interesting, relevant uh, talk to get to us, even though you didn't know what you were going to say. I really appreciated what you had to say about the development of community based on a thread of heritage that comes down, um, whether spoken or written or genetic. And it particularly uh, appeals to me the idea of finding a new family in the new community you join, because I think that's very much the story of gay people in this culture and having lived through the past Mm. uh, decades in which gay people have found community, uh, not always with totally positive benefits, but um, uh, it is an aspect of creating a family beyond what your genetic heritage is. Mm. 
uh, and this is a particularly strong family here, uh, as evidenced by its endurance through mm. several decades. And secondly, I really appreciate you going into the uh, actual words of that chant and giving uh, some translation. And I was particularly struck by how uh, you emphasize the invitational quality of the teacher teaching. And that, to me, as a, as a former Roman Catholic, is very important, having had something laid on top of me mm. and expected of me to be able to find something inside myself without any you know, structural overlay mm. has been very important. So thanks for highlighting that. Thanks, Al. Uh, your uh, chanting at the beginning uh, had a quality to it that reminded me of Gregorian chants, uh, and uh, you know, see some parallels there because uh, they're in Latin and yes. they're not necessarily understood by the people singing them, let alone the the general uh, the population. But it has a devotional quality to it that uh, you know that puts you in the mood uh, yeah. to yeah. to focus on those. Uh, I was wondering what. What your uh, yourselves or your communities uh, the pattern is with this chance? Is this something you do like every day? Or do you do it individually, communally, uh, some part of the day or not another? I'm just curious about that. We um, do do it, not that particular chant, but we do chant the refuge and precepts day um, here at our morning meditation. We did that for many, actually recently, just last year. We stopped doing it because we wanted to be more inviting because it's an open sit. And what we'll do is, if it's just people from the community, we'll chant. And if somebody is not is here from outside, we'll just do a, a simple a salutation to the shrine, um, which is quite short. So it, it, the salutation we do to the shrine is actually in Sanskrit, and it's just, um, yeah, about four lines. Um, and we bow, and then we sit down, and we don't do the refuge and precepts, which is a bit of a long chant, and it's also in Pali. Um, so there's that. We also, because our community is kind of eclectic between Mahayana and Theravada and Vajrayana, um, we also chant um, uh, more regularly in our community, probably on a weekly basis. We'll get together and chant um, mantras, which don't which literal translation is pretty difficult to do they're more they're seed syllables that invoke um, at best very pure emotion you might say so we kind of understand that it means compassion and and that end of story and then we just chant it you know so that's pretty regular this particular chant we do a lot on um, retreats in the morning Gary. Thank you, Prasadishita, for coming today. Um, so, I'm interested in uh, what your film was about. <laughs> um, I worked as a director of photography, um, so it's not my film. Uh, I did not direct or produce it. Oh, not yet. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, but uh, it's a 20-minute short that was basically an infomercial for UCSF that was just recently on NBC. Um, uh, really a beautiful story about a woman who had this surgery. She had epilepsy, um, and she was able to have this surgery that stopped her epileptic seizures, which were quite awful. That's, uh, 
Thank you for chanting with us. You used the word devotional chant, and I'm not sure I've heard the word devotional in this room before. So talk a bit about that. Okay. Um, I... The, I appreciate that, and I and this is what I want to express about devotional chanting, which is that, um, as Oswaldo said, it's like when I first started learning these chants, I didn't really know, and I hardly knew any of the words. I kind of heard some of them, like oh, I know Buddha and Dhamma, and you know, I could hear it, um, but it but it was presented to me in a context where um, it was just generically appreciative for me to. To, to learn this whole slew of things and be able to chant it and be able to abide in it with this tune that's very heartfelt. And um, that, to me, in relationship to learning what the words actually mean, was important. So I didn't learn what the words meant first. What I did was make my heart open and appreciative because... What that meant was I was appreciative of real things. I am very appreciative of my community. I'm very appreciative of the really attentive, loving meditation teaching I've had over the past 15 years. And that has come from many people. And for me to be appreciative of that over time and then go and be like, learning what these mean after the fact means that Oh, it's like, it's so affirming because I'm like, the, in a way the experience came first. And then I read these things and I realize this is true. This is what, this is what I meant and I didn't even know it. If that makes sense. And there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. So it's not that the devotion was without understanding. I was being, I was just saying the words because I knew what I was appreciative for. And then later on I found out that the words were what I was appreciative for. Come and see. Come and see, yeah. yeah. Uh, hearing you describe Buddhism this way makes me wonder how Christianity and, and, or the Judeo-Christian religions spread as much as they did with this, you know, believe this, believe that, this imposition of thinking opposed to the invitational uh, approach. Or even if it did spread that way. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it spread first by invitation and then later on it got corrupted. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the requiring one to believe in a miracle. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, maybe there was a miracle. <laughs> yeah. And that really... Impress people, <laughs> um, but Buddhism doesn't require a miracle. Sure, and maybe people just maybe what maybe believing in a miracle back then wasn't that big a deal. So you don't think that um, enlightenment is a miracle? What you don't think enlightenment is a miracle? It's a belief in a miracle. Depends on how you define it. I, I don't know. I can't hear what you're. Have you had enlightenment? enlightenment. It is a miracle. It's a belief in a miracle. It, it could be miracle, miraculous for sure. I think. Well, that's yeah. what mythological Buddha is, is that he's a mythology. Yes. Just like Jesus is. Yes. That it's not about. There's a whole mythology about metaphor. Yes. And then there's the historical. Yes. And but they you also have the mythological. You do. In the same text. Belief. 
in the same text. Yes. I don't. I don't necessarily. I think that what belief means is an interesting thing, and I don't think it's well defined. Uh, do you know anything about the physiological effects of chanting? Mm. Only experientially. <laughs> I, I don't know if there have been studies or anything, but I do feel like there are certain vibrations that certain elements of a chant bring to your body that you're creating yourself. But yeah, I felt that. Yeah, I feel it too whenever there's a chant. There have been studies about what meditation does emotionally and physically, biochemically in the body. Yeah. And I would think that there's similar things and there's measurable differences in the body chemistry as we go with meditation. And I would think that's the same with um, any chanting because chanting is kind of a meditation. True, but it's something you're doing with your your body to make this sound. You know that is different from just sitting and breathing. That I'm interested in. Mm. I would agree with both of you. I mean, I would actually say that meditation is a physical thing. Yeah. So it's a physical thing that doesn't include the same vibrational, come emotional aspect that chanting might have, but uh, the way I've been taught meditation, which also is highly informed by the Zen tradition, um, is that in a sense, the whole meditation is to hold, is, is a posture. Um, it's a posture that corresponds to a mental posture. It's a physical posture that corresponds to a mental posture. And when you take that posture physically, it can invoke the mental posture, or you can invoke the mental posture and it informs slowly but surely the physical posture. And they aren't necessarily different things ultimately. And it's similar with chanting. You know, you're taking a, the chant means something, but it may not actually happen for you, especially communally. The chanting and the tone and the people's intention is infectious, so it, you can feel it sometimes where you know, we're all not on board and then all of a sudden we catch somebody, somebody's inspired, <laughs> and then it spreads somehow, you know. So we all, you know, get inspired. You know, just in conjunction with this, I'm reminded of a group of men that I used to sing with over on the East Bay, and it was a group of men, most of whom don't sing, many of whom can't carry a tune, mm -hmm. and yet when they begin to sing together, and they're led by a very thoughtful, deep, devotionally intentioned and energetic man, a harmony begins to form that defies belief when you yes. consider the individual quality of the people that are singing. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And I think this happens on retreat, you know, even without chanting, there's something about meditation is a, is a, is a way of singing with your mind, you know, and you, you subtly catch it from people who are meditating. Uh, you just feel their settledness and then you become settled. I think it's akin to that. I think not just even by metaphor, almost the same thing without vibration or without audio. So I think it's funny that last week when Jennifer Berezon was here, she said, um, she quoted somebody and said, singing harmony is basically just any note that your neighbor's not singing. <laughs> <laughs> but still informed by your neighbor, of course, which is amazing, yeah. <clears throat> Well, Jack, I congratulate you for fielding 
questions from uh, about 20 different <laughs> directions um, on this. Mine is a, is a question about your, your understanding of the importance of language and the original languages, particularly Buddhism, which in contrast to my experience with Christianity is vastly more important. And we've had a, lots of teachers come in here who regularly refer to the Pali word for a certain concept. Is that, I mean, in Christianity, there's very little of that, at, at least in the experiential. Um, hmm. I, I don't know person. about Christianity, but, you know, the, the central thing being a matter of communication, of experience, means that, uh, and, and in a sense, the Buddhist inspiration from hmm. That you know, from the central experience of the Buddha, which is miraculous, um, so it's 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 something that's being conveyed that's miraculous, which I think inherently means that no matter what language you're using, it's not adequate. And so, yeah, that means that that means we spend a lot of time trying to like see what's being gotten at. What's the thing rather than the word? Yeah, but but the words are important, you know. Well, my understanding in in. in Islam is that if you don't if you don't read the Quran in Arabic, you're not getting it. You're not getting the real thing. And that's a very strict interpretation of the word. Yeah, so I don't think I mean the thing when the Buddha taught, he really wanted his disciples to go forth and not um, have it by rote. He wanted them, I mean, very clearly to teach from their experience, not just repeat what he said. And also, he made it. He he made it a point to ask that his teachings not be, you know, this is what is recorded anyway. Not have his teachings recorded in in in, in, in a religious language, meaning like a technical religious language at the time. So a lot of people wanted to record his, apparently, record his teachings in Sanskrit. Because Sanskrit did it exist in that day because it was a religious kind of codified language that was kept pure and he asked that his language that his teachings not be recorded in that because he didn't want it to get static he didn't want it to be something that wasn't lived so it's a balance between the two and it's important to understand that Pali is not a language it doesn't exist it never did exist as a language it never was a language in fact it's a body of text because Pali just means text literally the word means text um, and it, it's a body of text that's canonized in a particular tradition and um, it was put together over a long period of time from many places that spoke different languages all the languages were similar but throughout it actually the language is not one language it's actually a kind of mishmash of northern Indic languages I just want to say that because it's not, it's not a language there is Magadhi. There's there are these ancient Indian um, languages that existed. We have very little full understanding of, but Pali itself is actually studied as if it's a language, but it isn't. If you really talk to the people who are scholars, they understand that they're studying something that's a mishmash of a bunch of people remembering things in different ways from different regions, a little bit like Europe, you know, like Spanish and Italian and French, you know, like. They're, they're all mixed together. Imagine a text where it's French, Italian, and, you know, Spanish, all in the same body. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we used up the full hour. Uh, thank you so much for our first. Very, uh, 
active uh, conversation back and forth. It was wonderful. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, well, this is. Uh, what do we do next? Well, we, we, we take a half hour for social at, the, at this point, uh, and I'm supposed to remind you uh, of uh, the importance of uh, the Donna Bowl that gets passed around uh, to sustain uh, the rental of this place and all the good stuff that we do as, as a group, uh, the uh, Larkin Street uh, lunches and uh, so forth. Uh, now, also, I'm, at this point, I'm supposed to uh, say something about what's happening next week, and next uh, next Sunday will be uh, an open discussion, as will be the week after that. So, uh, uh, this be most of the end of the year. Might not be a bad idea to start thinking, reflecting back on this year in preparation for our uh, small group discussions, and uh, so uh, I'm hoping that they will be very productive for the next couple of weeks, so we can put an end to this, what uh, Queen Elizabeth at one point said about one of the years when there was all these divorces, <laughs> the Anno Horribilis, and I think this qualifies uh, as being one of those. So, yeah, but enough, uh, enough commentary uh, over here. Do we have a host? Uh, yes, we have a host. Well, there's cookies and dates and whatnot to enjoy. Um, there's tea available. Please put your cup in the dishwasher. There's a uh, sign-up sheet on the credenza if you wish to get our newsletter. Uh, some people meet for lunch around 12.30. Uh, by the door, you might consider actually inviting someone to join you. And mm -hmm. that pretty much covered. Any other announcements? Uh, yes. Um, I'd just like to say, uh, Prasada Chitta is our last speaker for 2017. Mm -hmm. So we have two group discussions coming up to close out the year. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank especially two men that I know for sure it's these two guys that put together our, you know, bring together these wonderful speakers that we get to enjoy week after week after week. And so a special thank you to Hal Hershey yes. and to Jeff Lindemood for all that you do for us and Also, a special shout out to the members who also will approach these wonderful men and say, hey, I think I've heard of somebody or someone here. Yeah. So it can also be a little bit of a network too. But those two men, they're awesome. Thank you. I will say, I, one of the, why I love coming here is because I know that I'm going to be exposed to uh, a breadth of really wonderful speakers. Yeah. Uh, two things. This afternoon, the Golden Gate Men's Course is performing at 3 and at 7 at St. Mark's was it Lutheran? Lutheran Church, yeah. right across from Mission Dolores. I went last year. I'm going this year. They're amazing voices. It's their holiday concert, so you know it'll bring you to tears at points. So it's wonderful. And then secondly, when you store your chairs folded up in the corner, just for today, would you please orient them legs up, upside down? I'm going to replace the feet uh, <laughs> that have worn through so that they don't scratch the uh, nice wooden floors in here. Thank you. That's, that's, a, that's a good service to the community. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, let's do the dedication of merit.
by the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.